if you haven't heard already, you need to check out adfreeshows.com. We've started making announcements for a brand new schedule starting in November, including a ton of new content. First of all, all of our podcasts are going to have video and we're going to splice in some fun stuff and I'm sure the shows will get better as they go. But a lot of times we have a, well, fairly heated or hilarious interaction. And you guys have said you wanted to see my co-host facials and how they uh, get tickled or fired up, whatever the case may be. It's coming to adfreeshows.com, but a ton of new content too. For instance, one of the things we just announced this past weekend I'm so excited about is our championship belt series. We're going to go talk to the folks who made these belts, who actually originally designed the art and crafted them. They're going to explain exactly what that process was like. We'll discuss briefly who ordered it, what we thought it cost to order, how long it would have taken, et cetera, et cetera, the whole manufacturing process. But then you get some beautiful 4K shots of the actual ring used belts after the fact. Of course, in between, we're going to show you all the great memories and moments that happened. You'll see lots of press clippings and magazine covers and promo shots. Just the story of those iconic championships. It's all coming to adfreeshows.com. I've also started a show part of my collection, including old boots and robes and things like that. And something we're calling the collection, some fun comedy stuff that I think you're going to dig, including Mance planning, great friend of the show and independent wrestling superstar. Mance Warner is going to try to explain illogical wrestling to our wives. That's right. Many of us have a wife in our life who is, uh, well, a non fan and we're going to have Mance Warner try to make sense out of things like Katie Vick or the chamber of horrors or the kennel in a cell. It's going to be stupid and fun. And it's all happening at adfreeshows.com. Lots of new storytellers coming along the way as well. We're doing a Monday mailbag feature with veterans of the game, like Jerry Briscoe, Mike. They were there for the good, the bad, and the ugly of the world wrestling federation. And of course, Jerry was a wrestler himself and had ownership in Florida and Georgia. And now you get to pick their brain every single week at adfreeshows.com. One of my favorite shows I'm looking forward to, well, it's Dr. Tom's X-ray. Maybe you have a favorite match, but why was it your favorite match? We're going to watch those old matches with him and he's going to break it down. Almost like John Gruden did his quarterback camp on ESPN for so many years. Well, this is the wrestling equivalent of that. We've even got a happy hour happening every Sunday night. You either get to chat with Medusa or rebel live on zoom, pick their brain, talk about wrestling, talk about life, have a little fun. Of course, we've got comedians along the way to make sure that we're entertaining you. There's so much great stuff coming your way, including brand new opportunities on how you can win lots of prizes. We're doing fun games like mystery opponent or caption it or name that theme parts unknown, the time limit draw in this quarter, create a gimmick. We're going to be giving away cool prizes every single day over at adfreeshows.com, including once in a lifetime experiences. We're going to line it up where you get a chance. That's right. You get a chance to go to breakfast with Tony and Jr. and then attend an AEW event in person. It's going to be a once in a lifetime experience. You want to talk about experiences. We've got a Saturday morning cartoon thing coming your way. That's going to knock your socks off. We've also got wrestling comedy theater with friend of the show, Cassio kid. Did I mention we're getting a hotline? Yeah, there's going to be a hotline coming soon. Some new columns will be there too. We've even got a cooking show that we're excited to tell you about called the getting heat cooking show. Of course you get all of the great ask series. I think I just finished ask Conrad volume 16. Get to pick our brain about literally whatever you want, but the big announcement that's coming soon. It's our conversation series. I don't want to give you a spoiler just yet, 
but this is what you've been waiting for. It's going to be so much fun. We haven't even announced it all yet. There is so much great stuff happening over at adfreeshows.com. If you haven't already, check it out and be sure to tune in this Friday. We're doing an exclusive Zoom. It's Hallow's Eve Havoc. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Myself, Tony Schiavone, of course, Eric Bischoff, and more all there chatting with you live and in costume. Yes, we're really doing it. It's Hallow's Eve Havoc, and it's happening at adfreeshows.com. I hope you'll check it out. You get all of our shows and our archives early and ad-free, but there's so much new exclusive content, it's worth another look. Go check out our reviews right now at isadfreeforme.com. We've even been told this is the best value in wrestling. Find out what everybody's talking about and come join in on the fun today. Join us for Hallow's Eve Havoc at adfreeshows.com. Okay, stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy, she's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye-flawless, near-colorless, high-quality, round, brilliant-cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista's available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Remember that song? I do. Eddie Money, number one song, November 10th, 1993. I love that song. I was listening to it just to put myself in the right frame of mind. I'm not a baseball fan, but the Toronto Blue Jays, the Toronto Blue Jays had just won the World Series a couple of weeks before. So I've been putting myself in this November 1993 frame of mind all morning in anticipation of doing this show. I'm excited. I thought that was a meatloaf song. Do you want song. me to sing again? Is it not you a meatloaf song? Again? Huh? That's a meatloaf song, isn't it? Oh, that's right. I said any money. It's a meatloaf song. You're right. 
You're right. I'm sorry. Thank you for that correction. I had to like check myself like, boy, I've been living a lie this whole time. I thought it was meatloaf. No, no. I don't know why I thought it was Eddie money, but you're right. It was meatloaf. It, it'd be, and I, and you, thank you for saying that and clearing that up. Um, and it's one of the only meatloaf songs I've ever really liked. Yeah, oh, it's wow. it's one of the it's one of the bigger, more popular ones for sure. Unfortunately, we can't say the same for this Clash of the Champions. It's Clash Twenty Five that we're talking about today. It went down on November tenth, nineteen ninety three. So I guess as we're we're talking here today, tomorrow is the anniversary. Of course, it went down at the uh, Saint Petersburg, Florida Arena, known as the Bayfront Arena. Boy, this is an old school wrestling territory here. Uh, Dusty Rhodes and Eddie Graham. And I mean, everybody in that Florida territory, uh, made a lot of money in the Bayfront arena. Were you keeping up with wrestling in that era? Or did you just sort of learn about it after the fact and hear about it after the fact about the, the no, historic, I, I, I had no exposure to it, you know, living in Minnesota, uh, you know, we didn't get TBS or if we did, I didn't watch it. I had, I was completely in the dark. Uh, uh, about Florida championship wrestling and, and Georgia championship wrestling and even the NWA, all of that was, you know, it's almost like, you know, back in the territory days when you lived in one territory and you grew up watching wrestling and you had no idea that there were other world champions and other territories and you didn't know those other territories existed. You thought all things, you know, revolved around your particular world heavyweight champion and your territory and all the people that you were familiar with that you watched on TV every week. So no, it was not on my radar at all. And it wasn't until I got to, to WCW. Well, we've got a lively crowd here. Uh, there's about 6,000 folks here at the Bayfront arena, but roughly only 1700 paid. The rest is all paper. Uh, the house is only $17,000. Kids were let in for free. And, oh. uh, there's a report that even two, just two days before the show, less than 400 tickets had been sold in advance. So there was quite a walk up here when you consider the, the ratios here that there were 1700 tickets sold, but. 1300 of which were essentially walk up or last minute buys. This is a, a challenging time for WCW and everyone in wrestling. If we're honest, and we're going to break all of that down. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad news happening in wrestling in this era, uh, both for the world wrestling federation and here in WCW. I mean, really less than awesome stuff, but it's part of the story. And I've always been fascinated with 93 because it feels like just a couple of years prior to this, the WWF was riding high, but. Even they are trying to pull the nose up. 93 has proven to be a very challenging year, uh, everywhere, but you even made a noise when I said kids were let in free. This has got to be a little disheartening where you have a lot of talent and you have some big ideas and it feels like we should be making some progress, but we're selling a handful of tickets and letting kids in free. It's gotta be a little defeating at the time. Is it not? I didn't feel like. I didn't feel defeated. I, I, I was frustrated with the fact that WCW, and, and part of me understands it, I get it, but they papered so many houses for so long. Every television taping papered, every pay per view heavily papered, Clash of Champions heavily papered. Well, it doesn't take long for your market, your audience, the people who actually are willing to go to an event or want to go to an event 
to realize that you don't have to buy tickets. If you just don't buy them and wait to the last minute, they're going to be free. They're going to put them on your windshield, you know, while you're in a 7-Eleven buying a freaking Slurpee. They'll come, somebody will come along from a radio station or, 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 or a newspaper or whatever and start slapping tickets on, you know, windshields of cars, hoping that you'll decide to show up and, and take advantage of it. That was the marketing strategy for WCW in the early 90s and including in 1993. And you, you, you kind of create, you manifest your own destiny when you do that. When you condition your audience to know that you're going to give away tickets every time you come to town, it makes it so difficult to change, you know, that perception and, and that it's not even a perception. It was a reality. It becomes, becomes even more difficult to change that reality. And that was one of the, the reasons, I guess, for my, I didn't even know I made an audible response, but I think back to those times and, you know, the, the, what started out as discussions and eventually became arguments and eventually became, you know, someone's going to go, either you or me, um, were the discussions I had around papering houses. And all of these things, and I've said this before, all of these things and these these mistakes that WCW had been making since the early 90s before I got there and certainly while I was there as an announcer and, and even here, you know, as an executive producer, which... At that point, I only really had control over the technical aspect of the television product. Um, it was driving me nuts because people wouldn't listen. They wouldn't see. They wouldn't even. They weren't even open-minded to a possible solution um, and, and different ways of doing business. All of which led me eventually, probably in '94, to shutting down house shows so that we didn't have to keep papering houses and producing all of our stuff from Disney MGM. Because it was, we had to figure it, not that the Disney MGM crowd was being, you know, was a paying crowd, but at least it got us out of the day-to-day -day marketing of free tickets to WCW events. And, you know, that was part of my goal, um, in addition to just saving whatever resources we had left and investing them in the, the television product hope, to hopefully raise the demand of the product. Um, it was just a really frustrating time in 1993 and, and, you know, talking about how many people, how many of those tickets were given away just reminds me of all of that. That was probably what created that reaction. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or your renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Is Zane Bresloff involved in the, in the business at all yet? Is this all Gary Jester? What is that? What does that live event piece look like here? Oh, I'm pretty sure Zane he was either with us. I'm pretty sure he was with us that by that point. Um, it wouldn't have been Zane's call. You know, Zane started off. He didn't, Zane didn't have a real strong voice in WCW until later on. As I got closer to, to Zane and we spent more time talking and I was able to learn more from him and, and his strategies and his thinking. Uh, and, and as Zane got to know me a little bit better 
and the reasons that I wanted to do things the way that I wanted to do them, you know, between the two of us, Zane's influence became much stronger, probably in 94, definitely in 95. But I think in 93, you know, Zane was relatively new. I'd have to go back and try to figure it out, but this would not have been a Zane decision. This would have been a WCW initiative led by Gary Jester. Let's uh, look. I don't I want to be careful. I always, you know, when I say things like that, it's like, oh, he's beating up on Gary Jester. Gary Jester was doing number one, the only thing he understood how to do. And Gary didn't have a lot of resources either. You know, he didn't have a lot of experience outside of, you know, WCW, really. He didn't have a, 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 a different approach or a, a different model that he could shift to because he didn't really do anything outside of WCW. And he was doing what they'd always done. And getting the same results. So I don't want to blame Gary for this. This is just the nature of WCW from Bob do, you know, who was really running the company at this point, um, all the way down. This was WCW standing operator operating procedure, just paper the house, got to get a crowd for TV, paper the house without thinking about, you know, how does that affect us? for the next year or two years or five years, once we start advertising and promoting and essentially letting the audience know that, Hey, you're going to get your shit for free anyway. Why buy it? Let's talk about Gary Jester for a minute. Um, I don't know how to ask this, but I've heard a lot of rumor and innuendo over the years that Gary Jester was a player. Did you get that impression? What do you mean by player? He had game. He knew how to close. He knew how to chat him up. He, uh, he was a lady killer. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? I've never heard that. I'm not saying it's not true. By the way, I didn't hang out with Gary. I never socialized with him outside of WCW. He and I were not, you know, I mean, I, I got along with Gary and, and I've had a lot of laughs with Gary inside of the office and some great conversations with Gary, but I, I. I would have thought that he played for the other team. If anything, I well, well, have no I, idea. <laughs> I, I don't know either. I've just been told by multiple people that he has quite the eye for talent. And I was like, wow, didn't, didn't see that coming. Um, um let's talk about hard the to, hard to wrap my head around that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the show here averages a 2.6 rating. It has a 3.6 peak during the main event by comparison, WCW Saturday night, just a few days before did a 2.3. Boy, this is not exactly what you're hoping for when you have a, uh, a primetime special that it's going to draw the same rating, essentially the same rating that you would get on your regular weekly show. Did you attribute and boy, we're going to piss some people off, but I don't know another way to ask it here. Did you think that we just don't have big enough stars? We haven't created stars. We haven't brought stars in whatever the case may be. But when you, when you don't, when you don't pop a rating, you're not selling tickets, you know, Aaron Anderson always says, uh, if they wanted to see it, they would have the idea being, maybe we just don't have the right stars. Were you convinced at this point, man, I got to have some new talent over here. Maybe it's macho man. Maybe it's Hulk Hogan, but what we have is not bringing them in anymore. I really didn't, you know, I, I didn't look at it as a talent problem. 
as much as I look, as I looked at it, as we've just been discussing for the last few minutes, a structural WCW problem, marketing, promotion, um, positioning. You know, I did believe, and this is largely due, I'm sure, to the fact that I was completely unfamiliar with WCW and I wasn't unfamiliar with WCW, but I was unfamiliar with the, you know, Crockett promotions and the NWA prior to WCW in Florida championship wrestling and Georgia championship. All that was, you know, foreign to me when I came to WCW as an announcer. And I, obviously I learned about it subsequently, but my general feeling was we need to be marketed and positioned more as a national promotion and not so much as a regional promotion, because in my opinion at the time, and I could have been right and I could have been wrong. I think time has probably proven me at least partially correct that the perception of WCW as a regional promotion is one of the things that kept them locked into that position and probably created the Gary Jester paper, the house type mentality I'm blaming on Gary, the Bob do WCW, Gary Jester, you know, mentality of, well, we got to pay for the house because we're just not that popular. Once you throw in the towel, once you say, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm happy to be, you know, number two, cause Ted's always going to be here. And as long as we're producing a decent number on television, you know, we're fine. Once you throw in the towel and quit trying to figure out why you're a distant number two. Why isn't the audience coming? Why aren't they buying tickets? Until you start having those conversations with yourself and with each other, you're basically throwing in the towel and accepting the fact that you're always going to be a second run. And I was either too naive or too stubborn to, to fall into that way of thinking. And it's one of the reasons I was, you know, I would say renegade. That's kind of like patting myself on the back, but I was, I was the antichrist within WCW because my opinions about what WCW needed to do were so alien and 180 degrees from what everybody internally, um, in WCW previous management that was there before I got there and management that had been there before I got there that were still there. It was like, no, oh, he's crazy. You know, we, you know, I, I felt like, you know, we were too, Southern. I felt like we were too small. We didn't position ourselves, even with our characters, the way we needed to position ourselves. I was too um, inexperienced and naive to recognize how bad the finishes were and how, I mean, this paper, this uh, Clash of the Champions is another and in, in a long run of great examples of the kind of regional territory, weekly territory mentality that went into some of the finishes in these matches. But I, I, what I didn't know from experience, I knew intuitively had to change. I knew our announcers had, it's one of the reasons I brought in Michael Buffer. You know, we had to change the perception in order to change the reality. And I didn't look at it as much of a, as a talent problem as I did a branding problem and yeah, that's probably the best way I can say it. Let's talk about some other problems that you're going to have, but before we do, let's talk about some decent stuff. Uh, you guys are going to take a European tour 
and Meltzer would say reports from the early part of the European tour based on crowds and show quality wasn't good. The opening night in Cardiff, Wales drew about 3000 fans. Although there was a lot of heat for the matches since WCW had never been in Wales before. After the incident later that night, which we'll talk about the spirits of the wrestlers were way down and shows the next two nights were said to have been below par as were the crowds. Ticket sales were hampered when one week before the tour, the WWF, which is far more popular in England. I started to say that they were going to run a, a tour. Of course, they never actually did. Uh, they just made that announcement to hurt WCW and Meltzer would write that WCW's TV airs in a good time slot on a network, but the network censors out what it determines to be violent content. So like a 60 minute show will really only be 35 minutes and a lot of the key angles being removed. And he would say, in addition to that, the show airs four weeks behind and the commentary is done by Gordon Soley and Steve Regal, which he said he described as boring beyond belief. And it's really hard for them to keep up with what's actually going on with half the show missing and different commentary and four weeks behind. What can you tell us about your involvement and understanding in the television deals across the pond? Was this, uh, this doesn't feel like a Turner priority. Is it just somewhat of an afterthought compared to domestic TV? Yeah, it was definitely, um, low level ancillary revenue and it was treated accordingly. Um, I didn't have certainly my role as an executive producer. And obviously prior to that, I didn't really have any involvement in the international television deals at all. I I, I wasn't invited to the meetings or, uh, asked for an opinion about anything. Uh, and in fairness, I'm not sure I would have had much to offer because right. international television at that point wasn't something that I had any feel for whatsoever. Um, but a lot of the international television deals were spearheaded by a guy. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I'm going to leave a little bit of room to be incorrect, but a guy whose name you may remember or be familiar with by a guy by the name of Stu Schwartz. Okay. Stu Schwartz was a Turner executive who oversaw international television distribution, who ironically, just before the acquisition of WCW by WWE, ended up working for WWE. Imagine that. Ta-da. Ta-da. But a lot of the international distribution was done by Turner international television sales because Turner had a big footprint. Keep in mind, they had the movie library, you know, they, they had all of the, the TNT and TBS programming. Um, they had new line cinema, I believe at that point in time and all the other, you know, entertainment assets that were a part of Turner broadcasting. So they were theoretically able to leverage a lot of those higher profile programs that had some appetite and interest internationally to help leverage opportunities for WCW. The truth is it didn't happen that way. The truth is nobody in, in Turner international ad sales gave a shit about WCW, nor did they even want to pull it out of their, you know, little briefcase as they traveled around the world, selling Turner television properties. The last thing that they wanted to pull out of that box was WCW because most people in the company were completely embarrassed by the fact that they were even in the professional wrestling business. That was a common denominator within Turner Broadcasting from prior to me getting there to the day that the company was sold. That's one consistent fact 
within Turner Broadcasting. But at the time, because WCW had no, there was no reason for anybody to be excited about it. Turner International did very, very little for us. Sharon Sadello was kind of our internal um, liaison, if you will. She worked closely with Stu Schwartz, I guess, or not closely with him, but she kind of worked in conjunction with him as an adjunct to, to international television and sales efforts. And Sharon was out selling it. It, it really didn't become international ad sales didn't become something that ended up on my radar till probably around the middle of 94 is when I started first looking at it. And interestingly enough, going back to the comment that Dave made, he was absolutely right about that. And this is really getting to be something I'm not comfortable with. I'm consistently <laughs> now agreeing. This will technically, for those of you keeping score at home, this will be the fourth consecutive time that I've been forced to agree with Dave Meltzer. Not happy about it. Nonetheless, facts, fact, truth is truth. Um, he, Dave was right. And that was that challenge was not only a big problem in the UK, it was an even bigger problem in Germany. And I say that because in Germany, now this, I wouldn't have to deal with this until 94, as I said, but for example, after we got Hulk Hogan, one of the reasons we were so excited about getting Hulk. And one of the reasons when I, you know, when I say I, we looked at the math, you know, in the commitment we were about to make with Hogan, we were in our minds projecting that is because Hulk was very, very strong in, in Germany in particular and the UK, but in Germany in particular. And we thought, man, okay, now we're going to be able to attract high quality promoters because WCW wasn't going to go to Germany and didn't go to, you know, we didn't promote those shows. We worked with a local promoter and you know, you, the, the quality of the promoter you're working with has a lot to do with the value of your property, meaning in WCW in 1993 was not a high value property. So if you're going to get a promoter, guess what kind of a promote you're going to get a secondary promoter at best, a secondary promoter. You're going to get promoters that are kind of at the bottom of the food chain in a local market because hell they'll promote anything as long as they can make a buck as opposed to really high quality promoters that promote major rock shows and have major relationships with major venues and the radio stations and all the other, you know, ancillary promotional uh, tools that you need in a local market. So we were working in the UK in 93, you know, with a secondary promoter in Germany, for example, going back to the point I was about to make, we found out that you know, we had the same challenge in Germany, even after Hulk Hogan that we did in the UK because violence, Now I don't know what things are like now, but as a reference point, when I was a senior in high school, I was a student, I was a foreign exchange student for a brief period of time. I didn't spend a whole year, um, overseas, but I spent, uh, a part of my senior year living with a German family that spoke no English by the way, in a rural community in the Black Forest, a little town called Haslach, H-A-S-L-A-C-H. Beautiful. I mean, it looked like something out of the sound of music. It was such a beautiful community. But I, I, I went there for a few weeks and, and lived in that community. And I'll never forget, you know, coming from the United States where 
sex, you know, nudity is, oh, no, you'd never put that on television. You know, networks would get shut down. The FCC would come in and pull your ticket, you know, if you showed nudity on television. You can show cars blowing up and people shooting each other or cutting each other's heads off. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's cool. But do not show nudity. Well, as a senior in high school, I'm living with his family. We're sitting around eating strudel and shit after dinner. <laughs> and I'm watching television and like, you know, an ivory soap commercial would feature, you know, some attractive woman in the shower, completely naked, washing herself all over. And you go, what the fuck? This is a commercial. <laughs> During prime time. So in, in Germany, for example, well, Europe in general, but Germany in particular, you know, sex was fine. You know, that, that's fine. As long as it was re relatively tasteful, it was no, no big deal. But violence of any kind, you're going to pick some, you're going to pick up and threaten to hit somebody with a chair. Boom. That gets edited. You know, hit somebody in the face with a closed fist. Boom. That gets edited. I mean, so much of our show, to Dave's point, as I begrudgingly have to give credit to, so much of our show, you go back and look at what those shows looked like back in that day, was completely chopped up, hacked, and slashed so that it couldn't possibly make any sense to anybody. Not that it made that much sense in its raw form, but by the time you get done running it through the editing meat grinder, there was nothing left of it. There was no nothing even with the best imagination, you couldn't come up with a coherent storyline in our shows. Top that off with, you know, and, and Dave was right. It was uh, Gordon Soli and Steve Regal. And of course the, 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 the logic was let's use Steve Regal because he's from the UK. Um, it didn't work for a lot of reasons. Um, so yeah, our, our show's a long way around the block. Sorry, spent too much time in the weeds on this one. But yes, the standards and practices for the television industry probably to this day are significantly different than the standards and practices here in the U.S. They were even more so back then. And, and not only and, – and by the way, in Germany – and I, I think I probably know more about Germany than I did about the U.K. But in Germany, you know, each little – Instead of a state, they have regions around Germany. Um, they all had their own laws. So it wasn't one, well, this is how you edit a show for the German audience. And this is how you edit a show for the UK audience. There were like different standards within Germany that you had to try to, to accommodate. So it was, it was really tough. It was really tough. And a lot of our shows, because of the violent nature of them, were on at 2 o'clock in the morning three o'clock in the morning because they had to be kids safe. So it was a huge problem for us internationally. Man, with all the extra stress that 2020 has brought so many of us, is it any wonder that maybe some of us aren't sleeping as good as we used to? Well, the ebb cool drift can help. If you have trouble falling asleep, or maybe when you wake up, you feel like you hardly slept, you really need to do what I've been doing. And that's try an ebb cool drift. Let me explain There's parts of this year where I think all of us probably knew it was time to go to bed. See the clock. We know I need to go to bed. If I'm going to have a normal day tomorrow, but then we just have trouble sort of turning it off, winding down. Well, here's my challenge to you. Imagine what you could take on the morning after a restful night of restorative sleep, whether you're seeking a natural solution or a long-term battle with sleeplessness. Or maybe you're just looking for small improvements 
to help you operate at your peak. It really is time you try the Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System. The Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System provides a cooling, calming sensation to your forehead through a personalized algorithm so that a precise temperature is maintained. It's designed to counteract the way the mind and body react to stressful situations, helping you quiet your racing mind. And what's interesting is all these years, I thought that I kept flipping the pillow for the cold side because I just liked it. No, it helps me calm down. And the ebb cool drift means I never have to flip my pillow anymore. In fact, the ebb cool drift system has been clinically validated. It's backed by decades of research and the users like myself report improved sleep quality by 90%. And this new ebb cool drift Versa is a lightweight and portable sleep system designed to be incredibly versatile to fit your lifestyle. So what does that mean? It means you can calm your racing mind anywhere you need. It's got a rechargeable battery that makes it easier to use, meaning you don't just have to use it in the bed. If you're one of those guys who likes to take a nap on the couch or in the recliner covered with the Versa. I got to tell you, man, I was a little skeptical of this, you know, I, I didn't quite get it. Uh, but then once I put it on, it was, it was a game changer for me. And I think the difference was, as I mentioned, I was used to flipping the pillow and that always made sense to me. Like I wanted that cool sensation, but I thought I just liked it. But I guess subconsciously I needed it to fall asleep. I don't need it anymore. It's always cool. And it really does work. It works so well that sometimes I I've discovered that my wife tries to go to bed before me so she can use it. Uh, so if I'm in there an hour later, if I went to bed an hour after her, she's already got it. I think I might need two of these. And right now, just for our listeners, you can save $25 off your order by going to tryeb.com forward slash 83 weeks and using the promo code 83 weeks at checkout. That's $25 off of your order. And you can try it risk-free for 60 nights. Risk-free guys. That's T-R-Y. EBB.com slash 83 weeks. That's T R Y E B B.com slash 83 weeks. And be sure to use promo code 83 weeks to save $25 today. You mentioned her a minute ago. I wanted to circle back to Sharon Sadello. It's in my notes here, my research, some changes in WCW hierarchy. Sharon Sadello will work most of the year out of Europe selling syndication. Mike Weber will take her duties in marketing and pay-per-view. And I'm probably going to butcher the name. Chris Potenza will take Weber's PR duties. Really feel sorry for him. Dave says we've talked a little bit about Weber. We'll circle back there. Do you remember Chris? What can you tell us about him? God, very little, very little. You know, I remember the name. Probably if I saw a picture of him, it would jog my memory even more, but, um, not, not a lot of recall on that one. Mike Weber, great friend of the show is now, uh, one of the big wigs over at uh, fight TV. And, and we've had a lot of fun working with him these last few years, but I think most people remember his name, not only from WCW, but TNA. And before that, I think he was even with the WWF, like in the WrestleMania three era. So he's been around the business a long time. You had a, probably a chance to see how Sharon took care of business compared to Mike. Did you have a preference one way or the other working with either? Yeah, I definitely preferred Mike over Sharon. There was always this underlying kind of resentment and resistance in dealing with Sharon. I think Sharon saw herself kind of as someone who was going to move up the ladder very quickly. I, I don't know that she ever had any aspirations to run WCW. 
but I'm 100% sure I'm accurate when I say she saw a much bigger role in senior management in WCW <clears throat> than she had even at this point that we're discussing. Once I started working with Sharon, and particularly once I got promoted, there was just, I don't know, have you ever sat down with someone that you had to do business with or that you did business with, and just deep down inside, you knew that they would rather be anywhere but where they were at that moment. Yep. Even though they were saying the right things and and fulfilling basically their duties and responsibilities, there was this undercurrent of resistance probably created by resentment. Always felt that way with Sharon. I never felt that Sharon was completely bought in at any point, even when things were going you know, there was a point in time, people forget about this because we spent so much time talking about, you know, the, the, the bad decisions or the ultimate demise of WCW or sale of WCW to WWE. There's a lot of, you know, historically bad things to go back and discuss and analyze. But there was a, there was a period from about 1995 through the middle of 1998, early 1998, when Things were so, as bad as things were in WCW in 91 and 92 and 93 in the first part of 94, man, there was a drastic turnaround, not, not only in business, but in morale by the majority of the people that were there, especially, you know, going into 96 and 97 when we could do no wrong and people you know, that, that had been in WCW for a long time, some, you know, before I even got there, were so proud to walk around CNN Center because we were kind of the hood ornament. We were getting more positive press. People were writing stories about us, you know, in all the media trade, positive stories. There was so much good and goodwill within Turner Broadcasting. People in WCW were getting invited to Turner corporate fun- functions that would have never been invited before. And and Sharon was an outlier at that point. There was like, she was almost angry. <laughs> we were so successful and had to bite her lip whenever she was in a meeting in front of anybody because she just didn't want to admit it. I think a lot of that had to do with Oli, by the way. Um, we talked about this last week, you know, that was a challenge that I had with Oli because his relationship with Sharon, you know, became far more internally political than I thought was appropriate. Um, one of the things that led to me firing him was one of the last straws. And, and I think on Sharon's side of that romantic equation, she carried some of that Oli baggage with her everywhere she went. And she didn't do a good job hiding it. Some people are good at that, and some people aren't. She wasn't. You asked if I'd ever been in a spot where I knew I was doing business with someone who'd rather be anywhere but there. Uh, yeah, about the first uh, 12 weeks of 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. <laughs> <laughs> he settled in eventually, and it was fine, but there for a little bit, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the UK again. I, I do want to go back to that. Uh, and yes, boys and girls, we're eventually getting to the clash, but it's such an interesting time in the company. I, you know, you've often talked about how you felt like WCW really had to give up house shows. It was just bad for business. You're losing money. It's not working, but we find ourselves running house shows abroad here. And I'm reminded of what we talked about last week when we covered TNA 
when we talked about how, for whatever reason, impact was not doing all that great here in America, maybe TNA was not a hot property here, but it felt like whenever they went to Europe, man, it was, it was booming. Business was huge there. Did you consider that, Hey, this may be an opportunity where we can really compete or maybe not even compete. We can really drag some revenue through. And then you go sign folks like, you know, Regal and Davey boy. Was this a concerted effort to try to see what opportunity was there that maybe had seemingly slipped through your fingers in America, or was it simply just, no, we had a promoter who wanted to bring it over and we knew we could make some money and not have any risk. So why not? Oh, no, there, there, no, there was a strategy, you know, and, and David, you know, signing David boy was a obvious big part of that strategy. Um, not, not that Davy boy wasn't considered to be a high profile talent and, and, you know, worth every nickel that we paid him for the domestic U S audience, but everybody knew or believed. And I think knew that Davy boy was, he might not now keep in mind. We didn't. I hadn't even had a conversation with Hulk at this point. There was no indication that Hulk would ever be interested in joining, but certainly Davey boy Smith in the minds of everybody in WCW, myself included. Again, I didn't know a lot about international, but you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. Um, we looked at Davey boy Smith as a key to beginning to develop that market. So no, there, there was more, you know, and Regal had been with us for a while. I think Regal, Regal didn't necessarily come to WCW or we didn't bring WCW or Regal in. And by the way, I didn't hire him. So I'm speaking, you know, based on what I think I know, not what I knew firsthand, but Regal was signed early on, not so much for a strategic reason, just because everybody thought very highly of his wrestling style and that it would, was something that could be different and utilized. And, you know, going back to, you know, my own experience, Billy Robinson, you know, the, the, the British kind of, style of wrestling has always been relatively popular, um, here in the States as long as, as long as I can remember. Um, and I think people in WCW looked at Regal as that kind of a character, but certainly once th there became an effort to have a strategy for the UK, then definitely, uh, Regal was a part of that. But Davey boy Smith clearly was considered to be a pretty major chess piece. And by the way, he's your only sellout. You got to sell out 5,000 seats at the uh, Royal Albert hall in London. It's an evening show where Davey gets a shot at Vader. Who's your world champ. Uh, that goes down on October 30th, by the way, sting is on these shows. He's losing, uh, or he's winning non-title matches, uh, with, uh, Rick rude and, um, yeah, all the big stars are there. Let's talk about the next pay-per-view though. Before we get here, of course, in this era, I guess all the time, this clash of the champions were really to build for the next big pay-per-view extravaganza. And the next big one is not too terribly long after this. It's November 20th. It's battle bowl. And it's coming to you from Pensacola, Florida, another show in Florida. Remember this one is at the Bayfront arena. There's only 250 tickets sold. The building holds 9,000. And Meltzer would say, although all WCW pay-per-view shows of late have been heavily papered and come off looking good enough on television and the battle bowl pay-per-view is going to start at eight 30 Eastern instead of 7 PM. I've always been fascinated by this, the battle bowl concept. It feels like a giant miss to me. It never worked for me as a fan. 
clearly it didn't work for a lot of other fans when there's pretty anemic sales here. What can you tell us about the battle bowl concept and, and maybe why you think it was a miss? And do we have it right that the the rumor in innuendo has always been, this was a dusty roads initiative. Well, it was a dusty initiative as, as a lot of many of the big kind of, um, headline main event matches were at this point in, in 1993, look, dusty, dusty had a different way of looking at things and he was looking for that starcade. He was looking for that WrestleMania. He was looking for that, that big event that can become a tent pole. And, uh, God, I want to, I want to be so careful about how I say this. Cause I can, sometimes I hear, I listen to our shows back and I, I make a statement and I know what I meant when I said it, but it comes off a little differently. Um, I don't think Dusty was the storyteller, long-term strategic storyteller that he probably would have liked to have been. Dusty thought in terms of the next big event, the next big headline. Sort of connect the dots, a, if you will, as opposed yeah. to a long story arc. Yeah. I, and, and, and perhaps, this is just a perhaps. Perhaps it's because Dusty came up in a part of the country where weekly territories dominated the scene. Yeah. So you'd, you'd have your big match, you'd have a finish or you'd have something happen that led you to next Saturday. Yep. Whereas pay-per-view was more of a monthly territory. It was TV, 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 pay-per-view <laughs> or TV, 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 pay-per-view, depending on what your lead show was. And, and as a result of that kind of weekly education and that base of experience and as a performer performing and having so much success in weekly territories around the Southeast in particular, um, and in Texas, the idea of elongated storylines that lasted not just weeks, but months it was not something that came naturally to Dusty. What did come naturally to Dusty was his vision for big events as opposed to strong story. Not, not that Dusty didn't come up with some great strong stories. He did. But the majority, I think, of Dusty's creative thought process was probably dedicated to what's the next big, huge hit we can conjure up and create. And I think Battle Bowl was an example of that. Why didn't it work? I'm sorry? Why did it suck? Why didn't it work? In my opinion, yep. lack of story. I mean, go back and look, even though WWF business was down at this time, you know, this was at a this was at a period of time when WWF was probably recognized for telling such great stories. And, and they weren't weekly stories. They were long-term stories. There was long-term buildups. And that's what the audience was, was voting for at that point. They were voting with their remotes. <laughs> that's what they, you know, in addition to all, you know, the great marketing that WWE did and the, you know, this tremendous vision that Vince McMahon had and shaking up the wrestling business and turning it on its ear and all the things that Vince did, you know, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. 
but at the core of it all was some pretty fucking good storytelling and it was longer term storytelling. Whereas in WCW, we were relying probably too much on the, the exhibition, the big match, the gimmicks, if you will, spin the wheel, make a deal battle bowl. And I'm guilty of it too. World war three. You know, those are all examples of, oh, let's just have this super big event. And nobody rose their hand and said, yeah, but we don't really have any great stories going into it. How do we build a story to support the big event? What's the foundation that people are investing in in order to see the payoff at this big special event? Those conversations weren't happening until later on. Uh, at this point in time, it was, oh, what's the next big event? And, oh, we'll slap together a story or two on TV and to help get us there. Uh, stories were a secondary thing to the big tentpole, highly promotable event. And it really had to be, it had to be both. You, you always wanted that big tentpole, highly promotable, you know, event that captures the audience's imagination like a battle bowl. But if you didn't have great story that people were invested in going into it, it was just an event. And at this point, WCW's track record of events that really didn't mean that much were a big part of the problem. I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Don't kid yourself, guys. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you've used any of these excuses or any others, you're putting yourself at risk of injury or even death. In 2018, nearly 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 43% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still need to buckle up. That goes for when you ride in taxis and use ride sharing services too. Cops are on the lookout and riding tickets. So why take the risk? Seat belts save lives. So do the smart thing and buckle up every trip day or night, click it or ticket. Let's talk about some other news that uh, I know is going to get you fired up. This is directly from the observer, Eric Bischoff, San Antonio Pena, a three page fax, wanting to put together a deal with AAA, where Bischoff said he'd get Pena a weekly cable television show in the United States and put his wrestlers on their pay-per-view shows. Pena wanted no part of it because he felt the company had no direction with its own product. So how could it be a benefit to a product that it had no understanding of? In reality, WCW had a deal with new Japan, which worked a style and had talent that would translate much better into an American style show and screwed it up. So one wonders how it could have made an alliance with AAA work to anyone's benefit. One of Pena's assistants and Ron Scholar, who heads the organization that promotes AAA in the United States were vehement about both Bischoff and Terry Funk, who it is believed went to Bischoff with the idea for going behind their backs and trying to put together a deal. Scholar said that one of his business partners, who was longtime friends with Bob Dew of WCW, called Dew and told him Triple H, Triple H, Triple A would never have any dealings with WCW as long as Bischoff is in the company. A lot to unpack here before you no, respond. No, it's not. That's not that much to unpack. That's both. Finally, after being 0 and 4 on Dave Meltzer bullshit, I get, to, I get a win here. I wasn't involved with talent in 1993. I couldn't have done a deal with AAA. Now, 
Subsequently, by the way, Antonio Pena came to Disney to to court me <laughs> and brought me a very nice, you know, gift from Mexico and we got along very well and all of that maybe a year later. But in 1993, when Bob Dew was still in the company, I couldn't have done a deal with AAA or Ron. I never had a conversation with Ron Scholar. Scholar. I'm not even sure I knew who Antonio Pena was in 1993. So there's that, which either speaks to my overall ignorance of the business in 1993, and perhaps I should have known who AAA was, but I'm going to be honest with you here and our listeners. I don't think I did. And he would not have been on my list of things to do because it was not in the scope of my responsibilities as an executive producer. Now, you know, I'm happy to be proven wrong. I've been wrong before when I'm going back 25 years and recalling certain facts that, you know, I'm being exposed to in the spur of the moment when doing a show like this. I'm, I'll, I'll leave the door open for Dave Meltzer or anybody from AAA to, pr- to, to provide. First of all, I've never written a three-page fucking email in my life. It's not an email. It's a, it's a magna fucking carta. Well, e- even my emails with. are generally about a paragraph long um, or facts. Yeah. Just that's not how I ever did business or ever will. You know, a proposal in a PowerPoint? Yeah, maybe. I'll buy that. But I've never sent anybody a three-page fax outlining a relationship. Now, I, I don't know. I don't want to speak to it any more than that because I would be guessing. But if anybody, include, including Dave Meltzer, wants to, you know, provide that fax that never existed, I will gladly go on Zoom as I've offered to do previously. I will, I, I, I will marinate that fax in a little bit of ketchup, mustard, and Worcestershire sauce and eat the fucking thing. But. I'm going on record right now as calling bullshit on that one. Just by virtue of the fact that it, if if I if, if I would have been in a position, if it would have been 1994 and you read that to me, I would say maybe that's true. Because Pena and I, Antonio Pena and I did have conversation. But like I said, he flew, he wanted to do business with us, with WCW. He came to visit me. He brought me a, a very beautiful gift that I had in my house for a long time. It was a big bronze statue of a of an Aztec warrior um, th- that I kept for a long time, not because it fit in my, my decor, because I thought it was a very cool thing for him to do, and it meant a lot to me. But in 1993, bullshit, Dave, bullshit. And Terry Funk, what the fuck does Terry Funk have anything to do with me? I don't, I don't The whole thing is sounds like, Dave Meltzer nonsense. Unfortunately, there is, uh, some news in the observer that, well, it's less than ideal. It's written Jerry Lawler, longtime co-owner of the United States wrestling association. One of the most enduring regional headliners in the history of pro wrestling was indicted on our, on November 12th on one count of second degree rape, three counts of second degree sodomy and one count of harassing a witness. We know the, the finish of the story. It's been well-documented. You're not even working with Lawler in this era, but when this news is out there and he works for the competition, does it spook anybody at Turner? Like, oh, do we have it? Do we have our house in order? Do we have any of these situations that are going to bubble to the surface? No, I mean, I, I don't even remember here. I don't even, you know, obviously I heard about it, but it, 
I paid no attention to it. It didn't mean anything to me. And part of that is just me. You know? Right. I, just be, look, I, we've seen so much of it, you know, over the last few years in particular, just because somebody's charged or accused of something doesn't mean they're guilty of it. You know, in, until, until the case is over and until there's a, a judge and a jury and a, a, a verdict, I, I don't really play pay, never have too close attention to these types of things. Um, and it had nothing to do with WCW. It had nothing to do with anybody on my roster. So there wasn't this, you know, kind of subtle paranoia, like, Oh my God, if it happened there, it could happen here. If that's the question. No, it didn't. It didn't register. We see, uh, in this era, especially on the main event of this show, Rick come down to the ring with, uh, Fifi by his side, but on the WCW hotline around this time, Missy Hyatt would say that Fifi was history. Were there problems with, uh, the real life Wendy Barlow in this era? Or what do you remember about Fifi's run coming to an end? Not too terribly long after this. Um, I, you know, I don't, I would, I, it's funny. I was thinking about that this morning as I was watching this show and you know, I, I get tickled whenever I see, um, Wendy Fifi and Rick together because it's just like, wow, it's been a long time. You yeah. Know? These, these two came together. Um, uh, I remember when they first got back together a couple of years ago, what has it been now? Four years or so? Yeah. More than that. I mean, it's been like eight. Yeah. Where, whenever it was, I remember Lori and I were sitting you know, I was, I was watching football and we're, I was sitting in my den and it was a cold winter day out and Rick, you know how Rick, when, when Rick would get lit up, he'd call you up out of the blue unexpectedly. Yep. And, and he was, he's in a great frame of mind. Enrico, Enrico, I got somebody here that wants to talk to you. And I went, oh God, which I always, you know, it's like, hey, oh, yeah. who is this going to be? Yeah. And how am I supposed to react? You know, depending on who it is. And he, he puts Wendy on the phone. I he said, wow, Fifi, how are you? And I, and I was, I was so happy for Rick because Rick was happy. Yep. You know, you could just feel the joy, you know, coming and they've been together ever since. So when I saw them the, together on the tape, I, it was another one of those, wow, that's awesome. You know, it's fun to watch how many people have come together that are still together as a result of their relationships and professional wrestling. But I, you know, I, I didn't hire Fifi I, again. I wasn't talent centric at this point, so I wouldn't have been involved either in hiring her or firing her at this point. And I, I, I don't recall there ever being a problem with Wendy or Fifi. I think it was probably more than anything, a change in direction might have had a lot to do with costs, right? Probably more than anything, because 1993 was a point in time where, you know, it was like, stop the fucking bleeding. You know, go to your, go to your, go to your office, pull every pencil out of your desk and count it. I want to know how many, if you can't tell me how many paper clips are in your desk, then you're not managing your resources. I want, I mean, that was my perspective, but it was all not because I was, you know, a great business person. It was survival. I mean, it was just survival. WCW had been mismanaging their money for such a long time. I've talked about travel before. I won't do it again. That was just one example. Um, but I would guess having not been involved in the process with Fifi, either on her way in or her way out, that it was more of a financial concern than it was a performance concern. Cause Fifi, I mean, Wendy got along with everybody. How could you not get along with Wendy? Right. Thank God. 
This fall, as you get back into the swing of things, Bespoke Post has a brand new seasonal box of awesome collection for guys guaranteed to upgrade your life. And by the way, I've put all my friends on this too. I was just visiting a friend of the show, Shuli Agar, the other day. And what did I see right in his foyer? His brand new weekender bag from boxofawesome.com. I've got an eye for these things. I've got one friend of the show. Casio kid has one. Now Shuli has one, whether it's gear to upgrade your autumn craft beers or cozy threads for when the temperature dips, bespoke post only sends guys the best stuff every month. No matter what you're into box of awesome has you covered from style and grooming goods to barware to cooking tools, outdoor gear, man, box of awesome has collections for every part of your life. And, uh, go check it out. Don't take my word for it. And how about this? Get started by taking the quiz at boxofawesome.com and your answers help them pick the right box of awesome for you. Now here's the deal. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up and you can skip a month or cancel at any time. Now each box only costs $45, but it has more than $70 worth of gear. I get 20% off your monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and use my promo code 83weeks at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com and the promo code is 83weeks and you'll get 20% off your first box. So what are you waiting for? Check it out right now. It's boxofawesome.com and enter the promo code 83weeks. Let's talk about some other news and notes here. The biggest is uh, the November 6th debut of Gene Okerlund. Meltzer would write Tony Schiavone plugged the previous week. How there was a huge surprise for Jesse Ventura. Despite the fact that Ventura acknowledged Okerlund's arrival two months back on a pay-per-view show, and it was plugged all week on the hotline and on the morning power hour, they still had Jesse act shocked when Okerlund arrived. Larry King even did a promo building up Mean Gene's debut. Like he was Walter Cronkite. This is the part I want to key in on. After all these years, they finally get some cooperation from TBS to get a CNN celebrity on their wrestling show. And they waste it by having him plug someone who can't draw them any money. It's interesting to see that when wrestlers run wrestling companies, everyone who isn't in a wrestling position or never wrestle gets treated like they aren't important. Now that they have TV announcers running the company, all the focus is on hyping the announcing team rather than the wrestling product. One of the things that I'm grateful to you for Conrad and, and convincing me to do this show originally this podcast and the success that we both had in doing so in the amazing audience that we built around the world, the, the pride I take in not only is, is not only in being successful from a financial point of view, that's important, but the fact that our audience is a much more enlightened and intelligent audience that I'm sure when they listen to that comment, I don't need to tell them just how biased and completely ignorant that statement is because our audience already knows it. They're so smart. And that comment from Dave is such a perfect example of the petty, insecure individual that Meltzer was and at his core still is. His shot there was partially at me because 
first of all, I wasn't running the company. I was overseeing one aspect of the company, meaning the television production side of the equation, not the promotion, not the talent, not the marketing, not the creative, not the international sales, not the ad sales. All of those things I, I had nothing to do with. I was a casual observer on the sideline. And, and for Meltzer to take the time to posit that an announcer is running the company and then to try to slide in there in his own subtle way that now that an announcer is running the company, we're only going to pay attention to announcers and not the people that can actually draw money in the ring. It's just, an, it was, when I talk about Dave Meltzer and the Wrestling Observer agenda, this conversation right here, if it were possible to frame and hang on the wall, should be on the wall of everybody that's ever read and paid money to the Wrestling Observer. Because that, that statement is and was still at the core of that type of statement and almost everything that Meltzer does. He, it, it, it was, a, it was a shot he, here. Here's the reality. Number one, you couldn't book Ric Flair on Larry King, whether I wanted to, or Bob do wanted to, or Sharon Sadella wanted to, or anybody else wanted to, it wasn't happening or Vader or Johnny B bad or sting or anybody else. Nobody in Turner was interested. So. Even if Dave Meltzer, as the editor of a dirt sheet, had a personal relationship with Larry King, even if that were true, none of the active wrestling talent in the ring was going to get that opportunity. However, Gene Okerlund, because of the high profile that he had within WWF, and the fact that WWF was a juggernaut even in 1993 when things were bad, from a perception point of view, it was an easy thing to do with Gene. So what we were, what were we in the, in, in Dave Meltzer's twisted, fucked up jock sniffing tail wagging opinion, were we supposed to do not take advantage of Gene Okerlund to talk about WCW? Does that really make a fuck who in WCW is on Larry King as long as somebody is. And by the way, that somebody was Gene Okerlund, who was the only person that Larry King was interested in talking to. It's a fact. It's not a shot at the rest of the talent. Sometimes, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And there was a lot of contempt in w, in Turner Broadcasting and CNN about WCW. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. That was one of the, my greatest accomplishments. Forget about the NWO. Forget about the Cruiserweight division. Forget about launching a two-hour live Nitro to go head-to-head -head, uh, against the, N, the, the WWE. Forget about introducing reality into, in, into the wrestling kind of program that we're still you know seeing traces of today it's kind of gone out the window but forget about all the other things that i did forget about the fact that i was pounding wwf into the fucking dirt for 80 well a total of 100 and 104 but in our case here 83 weeks forget about all that forget about it 
the fact that I was able to change the opinion and the attitudes of senior executives within Turner Broadcasting, turn them around and got them to reach out and embrace WCW is probably one of the things I'm most proud of. But what Dave Meltzer would have done had he been in my shoes, he would have said, no, you have to talk to Ric Flair. And then CNN would have said, no, we're not interested. And then what would have happened? Or Dave would have said, you've got to talk to Vader. Or you've got to talk to whoever, you know, Brian Pillman. Or you've got to talk to Steve Austin. Whoever it had nothing to do with the quality or, or, or of the talent or the value of the talent. It had everything to do with the perception of WCW as a secondary property that nobody in Turner Broadcasting wanted to have anything to do with until I, Eric Bischoff, changed that reality. So, Dave, go fuck yourself. Well, that's not very nice. Um, no, but it's true. But it's true. doesn't have to be nice. A lot of things aren't nice, but they're still true. Something else that's uh, very true. There's charges against Vince McMahon. It's going to happen right around the same time as this show we're covering. Uh, he's got three charges against him, three charges against Titan sports. He's now going toe to toe with the federal government and he's facing three years in prison for one charge, five years in prison for another $500,000 in fines. Uh, plus they could, I guess, take the entire Titan tower, which is worth supposedly nine and a half million. And the company should have to pay another million in fines. Of course, we know what, how this is all going to shake out, but did you have a read on what this was going to mean for, or did you guys have meetings about what this would mean for your business and what steps you needed to take to protect yourself from being in a similar situation? Was there any sort of strategy or game plan about, Hey, McMahon's vulnerable. Now we could attack this or that and maybe grab some more market share for ourselves. When this news comes down that Vince is in trouble, how does Eric Bischoff and WCW respond? Eric Bischoff doesn't And Eric Bischoff was heads down focusing on the things that I could control that, that I could influence directly. I paid no attention to those things that fell outside of my scope of work. Uh, or influence, and and this situation was one of them. Um, I, you know, in in hindsight, should Bob do, um, and and Turner Broadcasting have, you know, and, and perhaps they did it. I just wasn't involved. I wasn't invited to the meeting. That could likely be true, um, at that time. Um, but it it wasn't on my radar, Conrad. I can't I can't overemphasize how much. At this point in time, I was so focused on my work and the things that I could influence or control that anything that wasn't within my scope of work didn't exist. I didn't think about it. I didn't devote any energy, zero calories, no imagination into things that had nothing to do with my day-to-day -day world, good or bad. I'll, I'll, I'll take criticism for that. You know, maybe I should have been thinking broader, but I wasn't at this point in time. Let's talk about Hulk Hogan. Meltzer were to report Hulk Hogan has signed the new deal with Disney to film thunder in paradise in Orlando. 
The show's first 20 episodes will be taped from June 10th. I'm sorry, January 10th to June 6th. And will debut on television worldwide in March with that kind of schedule. Don't expect Hogan to do much wrestling during that time frame. In addition, when it comes to all the rumors of Hogan starting a new wrestling company, well, it's a possibility at some point, the time constraints are such that there's no way it's going to happen anytime soon. And of course, a, a few pages later, Dave would write upcoming Disney tapings for worldwide are confirmed for February, May, August, and November of 94. And man, with the benefit of hindsight, I can't help, but make those two pieces of news touch is Hogan. Even on your radar here, do you hear about the thunder in paradise and think this may be another opportunity? I mean, you're headed to Disney for worldwide. He's headed there to film thunder in paradise. We know the next year, uh, you make it happen and the whole business changes for WCW just like that. At the time of that announcement, absolutely not on my radar. It, it, it wouldn't have, it, it was no more on my radar than an announcement in variety about the next big, you know, Tom Cruise movie that was coming out. It just it had nothing to do with me at that point. Let's talk about something else that may not have been on your radar at the, at the time, but boy, it's going to be big news. Eventually on November 12th, there's going to be a pay-per-view show called ultimate fighting challenge take place from Denver, which is billed as almost an anything goes fight with champions of several different combat sports like shoot wrestling, boxing, sumo, karate, jujitsu, kickboxing, etc. Hank race wrestler, Wayne Shamrock, fresh off of a 44 second win. At the November 8th Pancrase show will be the representative of shoot wrestling. And there's also going to be uh, UWF talent there. The event will receive coverage in Japan, both in wrestling and martial arts magazines. And this is happening eight days before battle bowl. And then four days after that, there's a survivor series show on the 24th. So we've got three sort of combat sports, if you will, pay-per-views within 12 days. Uh, it's pretty unusual for there to be a WWF and a WCW pay-per-view four days apart that I do want to ask about that, but boy, the UFC, if we knew now, or if we knew then what we know now, was that even on your radar? Did you, were you keeping up with, with other quote unquote competing pay-per-views? This UFC thing, of course, is not going to become a monster thing for a few years, but this seems like something given your background you would have at least had a passing interest in. No, I had a passing interest in it, you know, just because of my previous experience in, in that world, um, in, in martial arts in general, but I, I, nobody looked at it as competition. It, it was a tough man contest. I mean, it, it's really what it was I'm not taking anything away from the people involved in it, but it was being promoted as a tough man type of, I mean, it wasn't being promoted the way it would be promoted today. I don't think anybody looked at it as, as a threat or even competition. It was, it was a tough man contest kind of felt like it should have fallen into that same category from, from our perspective at that time. Um, as a, you know, fan and, and, and someone who was formerly involved in martial arts. Yeah. I was curious about it but not concerned about it. And yeah, you're right. If, if we'd have known then what we know now, I'd own it. <laughs> I, somebody, I was offered to buy it at one point for $2 million and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bother to return a phone call. <laughs> what could have been 
how big of a, well, mis- I, think it, I think it ended up being just fine. It worked out just fine for them, but boy, you could have siphoned off a couple billion for yourself probably. Yeah. But you know what? For cheetahs, you know, when they bought it, people don't, you know, realize this, how many tens of millions of dollars, if not more, the Fertitas lost before it turned UFC turned around. It didn't just, it didn't happen overnight, folks. There was probably over a hundred million, hundreds of maybe I won't say hundreds, but there was probably over a hundred million dollars of red ink that flowed out of UFC, um, before it finally turned the corner. And it wouldn't have turned the corner had it not been for the reality show on Spike TV. That was the that was the golden ticket right there. That was the lottery ticket that turned things around. But that was well after, I'm guessing, $100 million or more of losses and failure. Okay. Stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy, she's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista, and she's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye-flawless, near-colorless, high-quality, round, brilliant-cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista's available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business, he's in the love business. This magnificent full one carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Yeah, 12 years later, the ultimate fighter turns it all around. Somebody else who's trying to turn it all around. Uh, this is directly from the observer and I can't wait to get your take here. Quote, Jim Crockett has sent out feelers about booking buildings starting in late December. We've talked about this a little bit. Once, uh, once the Turner acquisition happens, I think Jim felt like he had been lied to. He's very quickly replaced by not just Petrick, but heard. And I think Petrick maybe once upon a time had indicated, or maybe Turner did that they were going to let Jim sort of handle the booking of the wrestling. And then here comes herd and well, Crockett's not long for that world. And he's out of there. When you hear all these years later that, Hey, Jim Crockett's looking at running some towns, because I think the story goes, he had a non-compete. I'm not exactly sure, but now the non-compete right. may I, be I, up. I remember here. I remember hearing that. So now this non-competes up and he's at least making some some inquiries. Is this on your radar at all? Is dusty or Oli or anybody coming to you saying, now, hang on, we got to watch out for this, or let's be mindful of that or anything, any conversation at all about Crockett in 93. 
No, again, I, I know I keep saying this. I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to get myself off the hook and I, I don't want to comment on it, but nobody would have come to me in my role as an executive producer. I mean, had there been any conversations in WCW, they would have taken place between Bob Dew, Ole Anderson, Dusty Rhodes, probably Jim Barnett. Um, you know, Gary Jester might've chimed in, you know, people that had, you know, previous either direct or indirect relationships with the Crockett's, but it, it would not have, it would not have, it would not have been something that anybody would have brought to my attention. Was I aware of it? Sure. Was I concerned about it? No. If there's no TV involved, it didn't matter to me. Okay. We've buried the lead long enough. Nope. We're not talking about the show yet. First, we've got to talk about the major story. It's not Vince McMahon, maybe going to prison. It's not Jerry Lawler's legal situation. It's Arn Anderson and Sid Vicious. And we've talked about this a little bit before. But I think everybody by now knows the story. Some real bad shit went down on October 26th. There was a stabbing. And now there is the idea of how do we put Humpty Dumpty back together again, so to speak. Uh, we've got a beloved figure here amongst a lot of the boys and certainly one of our top stars, right-hand guy. And he's been stabbed by a guy who we are paying a lot of money to. And it's just gotten ugly. Supposedly vicious is making $600,000 a year. And Arn had taken a pay cut and it becomes a political issue amongst the boys. And then it just gets nasty to the point that there are multiple ambulances, uh, more than two dozen stab situations. There's gashes that are, uh, half inch deep. There's a gash in the throat. That's five inches long. I mean, this is a life or death situation. It makes all the trades. It makes all the wire services. They, uh, unfortunately, or rather fortunately for you, I guess a lot of the reports pick it up and call it WWF wrestlers, because in this era, WWF is the brand for professional wrestling, much like Band-Aid or Kleenex. Those are brands, not products necessarily. And Mike Weber is now running PR and he's going to give a quote to the London sun that says, quote, it just shows what you see in the ring is what you see in real life. These two haven't fought each other for several years and obviously don't get along. I don't know what the disagreement was about in hindsight, that quote can be beat up and you know, he's answering in a more kayfabe way, but I don't know what other official statement there could be. And you guys don't even officially make a statement for at least a couple of weeks. And there's lots of rumor and innuendo and speculation. And you've accept, you've explained here on the show before, since it was vicious, who went back and knocked on the door after there was a bit of a dust up, then it feels like he was the instigator, but there's also the trouble of, we don't necessarily want him going anywhere else. And to compound all of this, it's in the observer and you and I've never talked about this, which is why I want to bring it up that Sid apparently walked out of a steroid test. And this is not normally something that would even be worth discussing, I assume, but given the nature of what's going on with Vince McMahon and that it feels like WCW is going to have to put forth some sort of steroid testing policy, this becomes a major topic. Is there anything you want to touch on about the whole stabbing situation or have we covered that extensively enough? And can we talk about the steroid thing instead? I don't think there's much more to talk about with 
regard to the stabbing and, and, and the incident between Arn and Sid, because we, we have covered it and others have covered it as well. You know, I can tell you that from my perspective, and again, at that point, th this was interesting because as a result of this incident, this is one of the first times that Bill Shaw reached out to me for an opinion that fell outside of my scope of work, meaning this was a talent related issue and it was a big one. And it was one of the first conversations that I had. And I was rather surprised by it. I was, you know, I was, I don't want to say flattered, but I, I felt good. At, I felt good that I had enough of a relationship with Bill Shaw. And by this point, he at least cared what my opinion was about something that fell outside of my responsibilities. And I was fairly close to Rick at this point, And I want to say close in the sense of, you know, buddies, but we had a pretty solid relationship and business wise. And Rick came to me and, and kind of pled arms case. And, and I had heard, I had been made very aware as many people in WCW was at the time and in any level of management, you know, about the incident, it was well known. And in my personal opinion, it was all about alcohol and not about steroids. And, and I could have been wrong, perhaps, perhaps not. I, I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, but you know, you get a bunch of guys on the road and they're tired and they're in another country and they're jet lagged. And I am sure there was all kinds of recreational pharmaceutical activities taking place on top of copious amounts of pretty great alcohol. <laughs> There's nothing better than European beer. Um, as well as who knows what else to me, it was more of that issue and not so much of a steroid issue. And I think the, it's interesting, you know, Dave, and, and maybe rightfully so, uh, or justifiably so, was spending a lot of time writing about the steroid trial because it was big national news. It was very important news and deserved to be discussed even within the peripheral wrestling media. But there wasn't the, you know, impending sense of danger or fear within WCW at that time about there wasn't as much in WCW as there was in the wrestling observer. Right? Let me ask you this though. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I do want to make sure I'm, I'm explaining the situation properly. We've got two situations going on with Sid. First of all, well, one's a given he's hard to do business with. He wants summers off wrestling's not a priority. It's softball. He's not always the nicest guy, blah, blah, blah. So everybody knows that, but there's two separate situations here. Allegedly, we've got a new steroid policy in WCW, how legit it was or wasn't is up to someone else to decide, but this is what's written. The one thing we know for sure is that Sid Udy didn't fail the test. He missed the test. He had a valid reason. The company booked him for a public appearance the day before, and he couldn't get back in time. Eventually, according to several reports, he was asked to take the test at a television taping a few weeks later and walked out. By company policy, that would mean an automatic six week suspension and no reinstatement until he was able to pass a new test. The next day, everything was smoothed out. It's the belief of many wrestlers that, but unable to be confirmed as of press time that UD never took the test and may have even refused on a later occasion or even two later occasions and a statement by TBS and WCW management had refused to comment on despite several media requests earlier this week in the wake of the latest incident. If this is true. 
And if is the key word, because nothing is confirmed, then here's the crux of the entire situation. How can a company give a huge raise and make the decision to make someone world champion and build the company around someone with a track record like this easy because of how the man looks. And if Sid Udy walked out on a test and wasn't suspended right then and there, the management of WCW needs to answer the question as to why it's written policy wasn't enforced. If Sid Udy did this more than once and wasn't fired after the second occurrence, more questions need to be answered. And those who let him slide need to be called on the carpet and severely reprimanded for creating a double standard. Now, as a reminder, just to give context to our listeners, because context is king. We're building towards a starcade with Sid versus Vader. And even the show we're about to discuss, Sid was originally on, he's not going to appear on the show, but at the end of the show, they're going to promote that this Saturday night, we're going to settle this me and my man, Sid, even though Sid's not there because we still have not pivoted to it's now Ric Flair versus Vader. So we are at least thinking or hopeful that we're going to be able to salvage the relationship. But now we've got two issues. One, he stabbed a motherfucker and everyone nearly died. And secondly, allegedly he's refused to be steroid tested. This feels like a climate where WCW being a corporate entity and not an old school wrestling promotion would have to make a different decision, but we don't immediately make it. And that's what I'm trying to sort of get into the weeds about how political this situation became as we head into this clash of the champions. First of all, the core of all of Dave's editorial, because none of it was fact. It was all speculation, innuendo and editorial comment leading to a conclusion that Dave Meltzer felt was the right thing for WCW to do. But if you don't have any of the facts, admittedly in your own story, you do not have any facts. You have rumor and innuendo. It's easy to draw a conclusion and, and decide what should happen when you know nothing about the backstory. You can guess, you can surmise, you can connect dots that paint the picture you want them to paint to fulfill your own personal agenda or make whatever it is you're writing sound powerful, which is exactly what Dave did there. He admitted he knew nothing. He didn't know if it was true. He, he admitted that WCW scheduled the drug test. And by the way, I wasn't involved in any of this, so I'm not trying to defend myself here. I'm just listening. If I was, if I was in a court of law and, and, and I was fresh out of law school and I was listening to Dave Meltzer, the prosecutor making his opening statement, the first thing that I would say is great. We're not guilty because you have zero facts. You're willing to draw a conclusion and hang somebody. You're willing to force WCW to make an a statement that you feel would be the right statement to make and what you feel as a dirt sheet writer who has never worked for a corporation before. You're willing to say, this is what WCW should do, damn it, because they didn't respond to media requests. Well, fuck you, Dave. You're not media. You think you are, and you certainly weren't then. You were a little jerk off in your basement writing a dirt sheet. That's all you were. And you were 75% of all the things that you wrote were nonsense and bullshit anyway. You had no credibility as a journalist or media. 
So right off the bat, you can sense, or you should be able to, if you're reasonably objective. And I'm, by the way, I'll admit that I'm not, I'm, I'm way over on the other side of being objective on this one, but just based on everything that you read to me, you, you couldn't indict a goldfish with that kind of facts and information. There was nothing there. He's speculating if this really happened and if it's true that this happened and then this happened because of that, well, then these guys should do this. That's the essence of Dave's entire argument there. That's a fact. Now, will I say in hindsight that this could have, no, not could have, should have and could have been handled much differently and much much more professionally and that it probably would have as time had gone on? Sure, absolutely. But to, 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 you know, posit some kind of, you know, hard position and, you know, in such a, 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 a arrogant way without any, Facts to support your position is just garbage. And I can't respond to garbage other than pointing out what it is. This is a bag of fucking trash over here. Also known as the wrestling observer newsletter, November, 1993. There's no facts in it. How can I, how can you argue? How, how can you even react to something that's essentially supposition and imagination? All right, so listen up. You hear me talk about saving money all the time here on the show. Well, I got a little fun fact for you. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. But here's the thing. Searching for a better deal can take hours and usually results in like a barrage of those unwanted spam calls. Who wants that? Until now, there's a better way. Thanks to the zebra.com. TheZebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place where you can compare quotes side-by-side from over a hundred different providers and choose the best for you in just 90 seconds or less. Plus, they will never sell your information to the spammers. You won't get all those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple, fast form, and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch calls the Zebra Kayak for Auto Insurance. And the best part, it's completely free. And you could save up to $670 a year using the zebra.com. With states reopening and people back on the road, the zebra is committed to making sure that you're covered at the lowest price possible. How much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at the zebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's the zebra.com slash 83 weeks. It's spelled T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A dot com slash 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast today. Well, I couldn't have imagined a, uh, a much worse clash of the champions. There's lots of great star power here, but the show is just a miss for me. The readers of the wrestling observer agree with my assessment of clash 25. It gets 24% thumbs up 13.2% thumbs in the middle and an overwhelming 62 and a half percent thumbs down, uh, Tex and Shanghai Pierce won a dark match. And then we get going, uh, the actual hosts of the show are the incredible Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura. Rick rude is now out here as the 
WCW international world champion. He's got the old big gold belt and he's defending that championship belt against road warrior Hawk, a little rare singles action for him here. Uh, they go five minutes and 41 seconds. Meltzer would say if this is a world title and that seems to change daily, then this may have been the worst world title match on a major show in history. Hawk was wrestling with a blown out knee and couldn't do anything, which is why that was the case. But the match had a horrible finish, no psychology and no action. They go to a double count out here, Eric, and it gets negative two stars. No question. These are big stars and they look like big stars coming down the ramp. And as our old pal, Bruce would say, and then the bell rang, I think this might be some of, I mean, this may be the best route ever looked. I like the short hair. Look, I like him as the champ. This whole presentation is cool, but man, I felt bad for him here. Having to work with a hobbled Hawk. You watched it for the first time in forever. What'd you think? Yeah, I was really disappointed. And again, I hadn't watched this and probably forgot all about it. 24 hours after it happened originally in 1993. But this morning, you know, knowing we're going to do a show and I said, wow, it's Rick Rude and Hawk. And I immediately got excited because they're two Minneapolis guys. You know, these are, these are two guys that came out of the same bar. You know, people talk about, you know, all the great talent that came out of Florida, all the great talent that came out of Texas. Well, let's talk about all the great talent that came out of grandma bees in downtown Minneapolis, you know, Hawk, Rick Rude, Animal, uh, Barry Darcel, Scott Norton, Nikita, Goloff, all of the, all of these guys, you know, Jesse, the body Ventura, although he didn't come out of grandma bees, all of these guys were trained by a guy by the name of Eddie Sharkey, who was at one point, I think a light heavyweight wrestler. And I think he was a bartender at grandma bees. I used to go to grandma bees all for, uh, during this period of time. I graduated in 73, the drinking age in Minnesota at the time was 18. And of course, you know, me and my friends want to take all and take advantage of it. And, you know, we all hung around a lot of the same bars and one of them was grandma bees. I used to have one of my best friends had a band that played there regularly. So that's how I first, you know, got to know, you know, I want to say no, but became aware of guys like Scott Norton and Rick rude and Hawk and animal. And of course, you know, Kurt Henning would stop in every once in a while. All of those guys all came, they were all bouncers. Many of almost all of them were bouncers at grandma bees. And Eddie Sharker being the bartender, part-time wrestling trainer went, Hey, I can make money with these guys. And it's just, it's so funny, you know, and such a treat for me, uh, to go back and see guys that I used to watch bounce (laughs) at grandma B's, you know, Hawk was actually started as a bouncer in a place called the roaring twenties. It was a strip joint down on Hennepin Avenue and it had been here since probably the thirties. You know, I think it was an old kind of burlesque place. And then Minneapolis on Hennepin Avenue, or excuse me, on Lake street kind of went downhill a lot. It was pretty sketchy and seedy on that part of Lake street where, where roaring twenties was, but that's where Hawk started as a bouncer at all. And they, you know, these guys didn't all know each other at the time. Some of them did because some of them went to Robbinsdale, but Robbinsdale high school, but to, to see this all come together and they all started working at grandma B's. It was just, I don't know. It, it was a, it's a journey back in time for me. And I got a big kick out of it. That got me very, very excited when I saw this coming up and it was one of the first things to cover. And as you pointed out and Bruce has said, and then the bell rang and I was so disappointed because the finish now didn't realize at the time 
I watched it this morning that Hawk was injured to the extent that he was. The match was just so disappointing. Yep. And the finish to me was just ridiculous. A double count out. And it and 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 not only was that double count out such a horrible creative solution to the problem, you know, that WCW had with regard to Hawk having a bad knee. I mean, that is what it is. And you do the best you can with what you've got, but if the best you can is a double count out, you know, number one, the audience is going to puke on it, which they did. And number two, you've now kind of laid the framework for the rest of the show. You've established that if you're outside of the ring for more than a 10 count, you're going to lose a match. Well, guess what didn't happen for the rest of the show? The count, the being outside of the ring meant nothing. Right. <laughs> All the, it meant a lot during this, this title match at the beginning of the show, we've established if you're outside of the ring for a 10 count, you're, you're either going to lose or you're both going to lose if you're both out. And then to continue with the rest of the show and completely disregard the rule that you established at the very first match. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh. I guess we should mention, if you go back and watch this match, you can hear rude and Hawk dropping F bombs all over each other, uh, which is probably not what they want on TBS, but what nobody wants on TBS is match. Number two, this is real folks. A shock master beats the equalizer in two minutes and 28 seconds with that dreaded bear hug slam Meltzer would write equalizer. Couldn't even run the ropes. At least it was short. This show sure started off strong. Uh, if you're keeping up, this gets a negative one star. So between the first match and the second one, we're negative three stars in two matches in, uh, Eric, what was your favorite match on the card and what was it? Shockmaster or why was it Shockmaster equalizer? <laughs> Brother, I, I tried to watch this one and make notes and I skipped through it. It was that bad. And you know, hey, look, it was, it was a reflection of what used to work, you know, late eighties, early nineties, everybody, when, when people were just completely enthralled with larger than life characters and three and 400 pound guys, this would have probably worked. It probably would have held up. Okay. In 1985 or 1987. Um, but even by 1993 standards, it was a dud. After the match, we get mean gene plugging the, uh, WCW hotline and he's going to interview Colonel Robert Parker and Parker would say here, Sid is now out of the stable. Stunning Steve Austin has taken his place and Parker claims to have a restraining order against Sid and Okerlund sort of hints that he saw someone who looks like Sid in the restroom. I guess you've got to have some sort of explanation, but this is piss poor at best. I agree. I, I don't, I don't know what to say. I can't defend it. You know, I, mean, I just can't, uh, it was what it was as bad as it was. Next up, we got Steve Regal retaining his WCW title against, uh, his TV title rather against Johnny B bad six and a half minutes that Meltzer would say is nice wrestling early. He says bad through a KO punch out of nowhere, but bill Dundee put Regal's foot on the ropes to stop the pin and as Dundee distracted bad Regal snuck up from behind with a schoolboy using the tights. And then Meltzer says, where have we seen that finish before? Like almost every match at the last pay-per-view one star. I love watching Steve Regal. Johnny B. Bad was a staple in this era, but I think at this point I felt like I'd seen enough of it. What'd you think? I felt the same way. I, 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 
I love the match. I love the pace of the match. I thought Johnny brought a tremendous amount of great energy. I always liked Steven Regal matches. I thought everything was pretty solid, if not better than solid, up until that ridiculous finish. And again, that was, you know, I've said it a million times. I won't say it too many more, but, you know, that was one of the, the problems that WCW had. Going back to the beginning of the show when we talked about, you know, changing the perception and, and the formula and the brand. You know, one of the things that historically plagued WCW during this time was bad finishes. Great matches, bad finishes. And this is a perfect example. Next up, we get a really fun match. It's Steve Austin painting Brian Pillman in nine minutes and 11 seconds. Meltzer would call it an awesome match. And he says the only problem was it was too short. And unfortunately, it had the exact same finish as the previous match. Pillman also came off as buried since he was the only wrestler on the show to not get a musical ring introduction. By the way, that includes the equalizer, a very creative use of the outside of the ring, including a backdrop on the ramp Pillman coming off the top rope with an attempted splash onto the ramp, but Austin getting to his feet, lots of fun, little highlights here. Finally, Pillman goes for the air Pillman or Colonel Robert Parker hits his leg while he's standing on the top, causing him to fall face first on the mat and Austin. Gets the pin holding the tights three and a quarter stars. And it's the second time that the heel has picked up the win, holding the tights and back to back matches three and three quarter stars. Do we get the same finish here, Eric? Because the agents just start communicating. I think the agents are communicating. And I think just from a creative point of view, there's just the feeling that finishes are not a priority. Matches are priority. Action is priority. That's true. But finishes are an afterthought. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. I love the Hollywood blondes, but the match is just sort of what it is. It is the best match on the card, at least according to the readers of the wrestling observer, Austin and Pillman seems like a feud that you could have gotten a lot more out of, but for whatever reason, it just didn't. Did you enjoy their work? Would you like to have seen more of them either as a tag team or in singles competition against each other? I have to be honest here. I was, I was, I spent most of my time watching this, this match thinking about what if, Yeah. you know, meaning what if we would have kept Austin? What if I would have had eyes in the back of my head or a crystal ball? And what if Steve did? What if, what if, what if, what if, and what if he would just wouldn't have been wearing those black tights? Cause if, if, if the kid would have worn something other than black tights, he might've had a future. That's a joke. I love you for that. Next up, we get a battle bowl control center where mean gene goes over the rules of the event. And we get a couple of promos, uh, from Paul Orndorff and sting. This is just not good. Right, go back and watch this. You could tell as I think you've, you've liked to say here on the show. It was deader than Kelsey's nuts. This whole battle bowl concept. Yeah. Fortunately, we're not covering that show today. Thank God. Uh, number, number five on the show here, Dustin Rhodes is going to retain the U S title over Paul Orndorff in 12 minutes and nine seconds. That's kind of a cool moment. Dusty is back here at the Bayfront center. Of course, this is his old stomping ground and he's in his son's corner. Of course, Paul Orndorff is ready for that. He's got the assassin in his corner. Um, Meltzer would say with the exception of the previous match, the highlight of the show was Jesse Ventura's jokes about the assassin throughout the match. The only problem is that the promotional storyline is the assassin is the ruthless menacing figure. Who's so evil. He might even harm dusty's mother, but Ventura takes all the heat away from the gimmick by turning him into a comedy figure in the butt of the jokes. 
They did nothing for the first 10 minutes, although that was by design so they could keep the emphasis outside the ring where it belonged. Finally, Orndorff misses a knee drop off the top and he's cradled by Rhodes. The place goes nuts at this point and the assassin goes after Dustin and then Dusty responds with a few elbows and man, I got to tell you, Eric, seeing Dusty throw the elbow and this Florida crowd making the sound effect every time he does it, woo, every time on command. It was so cool to see Dusty in his element, uh, but of course it doesn't last. Orndorff attacks him. Assassin hits him with the U.S. belt. Orndorff goes to pile drive him, but Dustin makes the save just before. Two and a quarter stars. The Assassin was a miss for me. It just didn't hit for me. But damn it, if I didn't love Dusty doing his thing in front of this Florida crowd. What do you think? I, I agree with everything that you said. I think that when I got done with this, first of all, it made me miss Paul Orndorff. A lot. Uh, uh, Paul is such a cool guy. I just, I miss him just being around him. And we were friends and we, we were pretty tight. Did a lot of hunting together and a lot of other extracurricular fun activities associated with it. But I miss Orndorff. I hope to see him again. Um, I thought the whole, you know, I was pretty impressed with the Dustin and Orndorff matches one would expect. Uh, inside cradle for a finish. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I got to tell you, though, as much as I didn't like seeing the assassin out there, it just was like force feeding. And I get why they did it because, you know, it was that St. Petersburg crowd and all that. But go back and watch the bump that that um, assassin took in the schmaz towards the end. Muckerfather took a hell of a bump. Yes, he did. I was like shocked. I was expecting him to go out there and wallow around and, you know, do some silliness, but he took an amazing bump and the crowd popped so much for dusty that it made me forget everything else. It was kind of lackluster, you know, a little less than expected in the match. None of that mattered because the crowd was so hot for dusty. I thought that like you, I thought that was really cool. It is really cool. It's a fun moment. Fight Camp combines a full body workout with cardio, strength training, and conditioning, all with the amazing feeling of punching and kicking a bag as hard as you can. And here's the thing who doesn't want to do that? Especially when you hear Eric get all fired up here on the show, you know he's ready to just unload on something. Fight Camp is your hookup, baby. And everybody knows that boxing is one of the best workouts around. And there's a reason that for years and years and years, you couldn't go in a gym without seeing some of those bags. Boxing hits so many muscles in the body. You're generating power from your legs, transferring it to your hips and shoulders, and finally from the extension of your biceps. And Fight Camp's trainers are all former fighters, so they mix in body weight exercises on top of boxing to round out all your muscles and help you generate more speed and power. In case you've been living under a rock, we've been talking about this for a while now, let me explain. Fight Camp basically brings the boxing and kickboxing gym to you with fight hardened trainers that combine cardio and conditioning, helping you get a full body workout. It's made so absolute beginners can still have just as much fun as experienced boxers. If you want to box from home, Fight Camp is a great way to learn boxing and kickboxing while also improving your fitness with authentic workouts, all while learning at your own pace from home. You're getting a real skill here and having fun. And oh yeah, you're getting in shape. 
The six trainers make all the programming based on their experience training for fights. Got a bunch of different ways to learn, like a 13 week long prospect path where you're taught the punch number system, the stance, and how to properly throw each punch. They don't just teach you the moves. You actually have to use them during these intense 15 to 45 minute workouts. That's going to continue to remind you to pay attention to your form and then reinforce technique. And by the way, you just learned something and you built some muscle memory. By the way, this comes with all the gear you need. Fight camp includes the best freestanding punching bag available. You've also got great quality boxing gloves, quick hand wraps for their unique punch tracking sensors that can show you real-time progress and your stats on any iOS device. By the way, this has workouts for everybody. The app from Fight Camp comes with like 600 workouts and tutorials for beginners, intermediate, and advanced boxers and kickboxers. And I think they're adding like 12 new workouts every single week. So you could get a 15-minute workout, a 30-minute workout, a 45-minute workout, whatever. By the way, this is an incredible holiday gift. It's the perfect gift for anyone who wants to take their fitness to the next level or someone who struggled with finding a workout that keeps them engaged and excited. And it's worth mentioning that Fight Camp is the gift the entire family can enjoy and get competitive on. I also want to mention that Fight Camp allows you to pay over time. You see, with a firm financing, you can get your Fight Camp set up right away and then make easy payments over 24 months. And it's yours to keep at the end. Now, it's worth mentioning too, especially right now in 2020, you're going to save on commute time and gas. You're doing this at home. And since you can have up to five accounts per household, you get a full boxing gym basically for the whole house. Team. And as we said, Fight Camp offers flexible financing, but check this out. It's as low as 0% APR and $0 down. And right now as a limited holiday offer, you get free shipping and a gift valued at $109 with every Fight Camp package. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's right. Get free shipping and a gift valued up to $109 with your purchase. Bring an authentic boxing and kickboxing gym into your home with Fight Camp. And to get your free gift, just go to joinfightcamp.com forward slash 83 weeks. That's joinfightcamp.com forward slash 83 weeks. I got to tell you, Ventura busting balls on the assassin was kind of funny. Uh, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he did look like a busted can of biscuits in that mask. (laughs) (laughs) I write that down. I got to steal it. I stole it from Cassio kid. So at the Cassio kid is where to give him props on Twitter. If you listened and you like that joke, I Uh, love it. Uh, next up, we get mean Gene saying he's been huddling in the back to get any information on Rick Rude and Davy boy Smith. And of course we get another plug for the manager of the year poll, which is fucking hilarious. You want people to call in and vote for Teddy long or Harley race or Missy high, who was the manager of the year. And we'll tell you at Starcade 93 and Gene jokingly says, oh, it's going to be so exciting. Uh, next up though, we've got the nasty boys who I love in this era. They've got Missy Hyatt dressed just like them. It's a great pair for me. I don't know why, but I just think that trio really works. And they're defending their tag belts against Davy Boy Smith and Sting. Of course, before the match, Rick Rude finds Davy Boy, gives him the rude awakening on the ramp, and now they're firmly in a program. We've got direction for them. But that means Sting has to work on one on two for the first half of the match. And finally, they get the heat on Sting, and he makes the uh, hot tag to Davy Boy. 
Davy boy cleans house and does some nice stuff and has knobs in a pinning situation. When Sags comes off the top rope with an elbow and that gets the pin sting is uh, way late trying to break it up. It's almost comically late two stars. I think Davy boys run in 93 is sort of interesting. I think fans view him as a big star, but it just doesn't ever feel like it gets all the way going here. what do you think of this match? I was, I was very excited at the beginning because as I'm watching it, you know, it's to, to me, at least in my mind, it was, it was laid out to be a perfect three X structure. You know, you get the inciting incident right off the bat. Davy's hurt right now. You've got your, your baby face, your, 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 your protagonist, your good guy sting. He's coming to the ring. Oh, the odds are against him. Perfect setup, right? In your first act, your hero is fighting from underneath disadvantages. He's fighting, he's fighting, he's fighting. He's doing an admirable job until they get him in trouble in act two. Now the tide is turning and your hero is in trouble. Well, what that does is it creates anticipation. Everybody knows Davy boys outside of the ring. He's been working hurt. He's, he's selling it, blah, 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 blah. You know, he's going to come. You just don't know when. And they did a perfect job of setting all of that up. And then, boom, act three, Davy Boy's back. He tags in. Now he's cleaning house. And you get a real sense that this is going to go the way you want it to go. But they opted to go with a heat finish for for the heels. And I just think that was a bad – I understand why they did it. This is a TV show, not a pay-per-view. Got to remember that. The rules should be different in a pay-per-view than they are on television. Television should be used to lead to a pay-per-view and lead to the end of a story. But I get it. It just seems like it was a missed opportunity to me. Next up, we've got uh, our main event. Vader is going to retain the WCW title after getting disqualified against Ric Flair. Meltzer would call it the ultimate screw job finish in nine minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, of course, Flair is with Fifi. Harley Race is going to attack Flair early, but Flair turns the tables, has him in the figure four when Vader splashes him to take the control early. Meltzer says, due to time constraints, this was largely a rush job. Although it was a good match, there is the obligatory ref bump, and we see Vader try some big things, including a moonsault that he misses. Uh, ultimately, though, um, it's called for a DQ. Flair is the winner, and it makes the second straight show, Meltzer says. In less than three weeks, where Flair pinned a world champ and inversely the same manner didn't win the title. Steve Austin does a run in. He and Vader are doubling down on Flair until the Booker's family, Dustin and Shockmaster, get the final curtain call for the save. Flair does an interview saying he wants a tag match with Vader and Austin taking on him and Sid Vicious as his partner. Meltzer says, You won't believe the amount of comments Flair doing that promo putting over Sid has caused. Far more within the business than from readers, not in the business with a divided opinion. Some said it just showed what a good businessman flair was by remembering it was all the work. Others thought it was the ultimate example of something entirely the opposite three and a quarter stars. What'd you think of the match? And what'd you think of the comments afterwards? Can't really comment on the comments. I don't, I don't, I don't want to comment on the comments afterward because I, I get tired of hearing myself sometimes when I'm referring to these things, the match I thought was. I, I was disappointed. The, the finish again. I understand it. It was a, another heat finish. I think they went too far trying to build up the anticipation for Flair's next match. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. And I still don't like it. I just there's a better way to do it. 
And, you know, I wouldn't have known it then. I couldn't have come up with it then. Had I been asked, you know, how to come up with a finish that was better than this, I would have, you know, I would have had the deer in the headlights look and babbled some stupid shit. So I'm not, you know, I don't want to be critical like that, but it just, again, it's so consistent with what I think was a, a fatal flaw for WCW for such a long time is the finishes just weren't thought through more than anything. They were compromises. I think between top talent, I think that that more than anything probably identifies the, the logic or lack thereof in most of the WCW finishes. And I think this is another example. Of course, we know this is going to lead to flair facing Vader at Starcade 93, which we covered last year in the archives. We know that flair is going to win the world title there. The best match, according to the readers, Pillman and Austin, the worst match, Hawk and rude, uh, Meltzer had a lot to say to sort of sum this up. And we've got some fan questions. Let's talk about what Meltzer said here. When he recapped the whole show, he says the clash of the champions from the Bayfront center was another rush job due to an overbooked show with seven matches planned over two hours, another weekly book show due to predictable and uncreative, mainly screw job endings and numerous complaints because the only wrestlers who got to score clean pins. On the entire show were related to the Booker, Shockmaster, Dustin Rhodes, and Jerry Sags, all of whom's push is hardly equivalent with their ability and marketability, and an overall major thumbs down in my book due to a generally below par work rate with the exception of two matches. Let's just stop right there. You can tell that boy, old Dave has it in for Dusty here. Did that even register with you that the only clean finishes were people in his fam? Um, no, me neither. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have, <laughs> by the way, because it, as much as I often bristle at the very reference to Mr. Meltzer or his dirt sheet, I, I can't disagree. Again, you, I don't know what this is all about. I don't know if you're conspiring to turn <laughs> me into eventually a Dave Meltzer fan. <laughs> if, if if that's your if that's your agenda, you've got a long, long, hard climb, but. It's true. I mean, when it's true, it's true. And it's hard to, you know, dance around it. Meltzer would continue. It was even more disappointing on one level because the show on paper looked very strong. It's disappointing on a second level because with a loaded lineup headlined by the first nationally promoted Flair Vader match for the WCW title, it only drew a 3.3 rating and 2.07 million homes. Quarter hour breakdowns tell an even uh, more ominous story. Unlike most clashes, which start weak and build up strong, this show gathered no momentum at all. The peak rating was uh, only a 3.7 for Sting and Davey versus the Nasties, and actually fell to a 3.6 for Flair and Vader. The main event is tied for the lowest main event in Clash history, which is a 3.6 for Flair and Arn versus the Blondes during the June Clash. However, that was a 3.6 show that averaged a 2.6 overall, so the main event was a huge increase from the rest of the show. In other words, the June clash, which was the lowest rated one ever started out with a small audience, but it grew throughout indicating more people turning the show on rather than off or that the show kept viewers interest and increased viewers. This rating starting strong and hardly building probably the highest level of switching channels or turning offsets in the history of a clash. You know, I know so you sometimes say, oh, people put too much into a 10th of a point and things like that, but I do think he has a good point. The other show built this one, maybe not so much. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in an ideal world, 
every producer and programmer, network programmer, um, on the face of the earth wants a show to build throughout the entire episode. That's why so much time is spent, you know, on a scripted show, at least even in reality shows, so much time is spent on the note taking process. And almost every one of those notes are designed to do one of two things, either to help clarify or dramatize a story or to time set elements in the structure of the story in a way to build the television audience. Your goal is always to build the audience. So anytime that you don't, whether you are flat, which is, yeah, it's not good, but it's not horrible. What's horrible is when you start out strong and end worse. <laughs> um, so yeah, again, there's nothing, you know, nothing really in anything that Dave said that I could take exception to or not agree with. Let's, uh, let's, I know. I can't believe it. That's like six in a row now. No, it's not in a row. We, we, he, he oh, bombed yeah, there was out one. on number four. I was zero and four and then I picked or zero and three and I picked up number four, but the last two, I got to give him. We're going to preview next week's show. But first let's do a couple of quick questions here. Francis wants to know, when did you know the shock master gimmick was a mistake? And <laughs> when he fell through a wall, of course, uh, Chris wants to know who had the better head of hair during this event. Eric Bischoff, Ric Flair, or Michael fucking buffer. Well, Flair's out. Cause he, you know, he had to use dye on his hair. Well, wait a minute. So did I fuck buffer wins buffer wins by default. <laughs> uh, Nick wants to know the main event ended as a DQ. Does Eric feel that these finishes like countouts and DQs add heat or the, do they diminish the storyline? They kill the story. They don't diminish it. They destroy it. They absolutely destroy it. You know what else destroys it? It's too many stupid, poorly executed ref bumps. Ah, oh, ah, oh, the ref bump. We didn't even talk about it in here because we were in a bit of a hurry. We want to wrap this show up for everybody. <gasps> oh, that you're talking about in the, in the flare match. I actually liked the, the bump in the flare match. You didn't? Not only. Oh my God. Maybe I'm going to go back and watch it again. Did I not see Pee Wee laying there for the longest time? Uh, okay. Okay. When he was supposed to be knocked out looking up through underneath his arm. All right. Well, maybe, maybe you're right on that. I mean, the actual bump itself, they did a spot where Vader's whipping uh flare or flares charging at Vader. Vader's coming out of the corner. Flare spots, the clothesline ducks it. Boom. Big body block for the ref. Instead. I thought that was well done, but I'll admit I wasn't staring at him to see if he was taking a little peek, which is, uh, well, less than awesome. And not only did he do it, he did it looking right at the hard camera. It was horrible. <laughs> <clears throat> it was horrible. I'm by the way, I'm perfectly healthy, healthy. There's no COVID involved here. I'm gagging on my own reflexes <laughs> as to watching this, this finish play out of my head. And we didn't touch on it. It was the most horrible execution of a ref bump, not the bump itself. The physical contact. Great. Made sense. I'm a believer up until the time I'm watching Pee Wee rolling around like a, like a fish that got washed up on the beach, flopping around, trying to look under his arm to see when the right time is to come back to life. Oh God. I hated it. Killed everything that was going on in the ring meant nothing because the hard camera has the referee working his injury. Killed me. Killed me. Well, you ain't got to get hot about it. 
I'm not hot. I'm excited. I'm passionate. That's a difference. People think when I get ramped up like this and I'm hot, I'm not. I'm passionate. Uh, let's see how embrace passionate the, you are. Embrace the passion, 83 Weeks fans. Embrace the passion. Two more questions, then we'll wrap things up. Ray wants to know, Regal or Miro, who was more underrated? Miro. I'm going to go Regal. Listen, I think Regal gets his just due. I think a lot of people say, oh, Regal is one of the best catches catch can. Nobody says anything about Miro as a performer. I think Regal does get some props. Don't get me wrong. If I got to pick one, I'm picking Regal as my favorite of the two. But when you use the word underrated, I think Regal gets a lot of props relative to Miro. I think Miro just gets shit on. And we know this is a legit badass motherfucker that we've dressed up like a fucking goof. Those of you who are listening to us anywhere around the world <clears throat> recognize what I just recognize is that Conrad Thompson just put me in my place. I stand corrected, sir. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> Boy, I don't know who this Eric Bischoff is. This is the invasion of the body snatchers. Let's do one more. Uh, Henry Lee wants to know what was one thing you could have done differently for this show that you didn't do back then? Listen, there's a lot to go back at armchair quarterback with the benefit of hindsight. And we've, established what the dynamic was. You're not exactly calling all the shots in creative here. None. In fact, uh, but you are the executive producer and you're trying to pull the nose up on this thing a little bit. If you had to go back and change one thing, what would the one thing be? That's a fun question. No, it is a fun, fun. And it's a fun way to look at this, you know, and again, because I, I didn't really have anything to do with it creatively. I could do it without feeling like maybe I'm being defensive or something like that. But, um, definitely the finishes, definitely the finishes. If look, if Hawk can't work, Hawk can't work, you know, get to him before the match starts and put an end to the match. Don't build up the anticipation of a match and then deliver a turd like that, that match ended up delivering, whether it was as a result of an injury to Hawk or not, if it's not supposed to happen, it's not supposed to happen. And you can still figure out a creative way around it without pissing off the audience. Um, and, and especially to open a show like that was just, it, it was a death nail into the show. I think right off, the, off the bat, in addition to the other finishes that we talked about, I fucking hate ref bumps. If I never see another one again, or the ridiculous reach outside, grab the ankle. Here's a guy you're, you're watching and I'm just picking a match in general because they all kind of look the same to me after a while. You've got a match. Your, 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 your baby face is finally making a comeback. He's getting over. He's getting over. He goes up to the top rope and a Colonel Robert Parker, Ike, like, I mean, uh, or, or a Missy or a Jimmy Hart or or an Eric Bischoff or whoever it is that's outside of the ring reaches in and oops, they grab the ankle just a little bit. And that craters this talent who has been getting his ass kicked and overcoming all odds for eight, 10, 12, 15 or 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden a little trip from an outside manager is going to be the end of the match. It is such a weak, such a weak way to set up a finish that again, you're killing the end of the movie. I don't care how good the movie was leading up to those last few moments. Those last few moments are what you remember when you walk out of the theater, or in this case, when the match is over. And that's why I think so many, you know, we talked about it on last week's show. You know, I felt so strongly about, uh, what pay-per-view was that, that we covered last week. I can't remember the top of my head. It doesn't really matter. I felt strongly that it was a great pay-per-view and according to Meltzer's readers, it was one of the worst of all time. Well, 
I think, as we discussed on, on last week's pay per view, had a couple of the had the had the. Oh no, excuse me, it was TNA. It was yeah, TNA, TNA Turning Point 2010. Had, yep, TNA Turning Point 2010. Had they moved the bully of the 3D match with Motor City Machine Guns to the main event of Turning Point, and that that would have been the last thing that that audiences saw, that would have dramatically affected, in my opinion, the overall impression of the pay per view because it would have left on such a high note. And I think being cognizant of that emotional roller coaster when you're formatting a pay-per-view or a television show or a podcast for that matter is really one of the most underlooked aspects of producing any form of entertainment. Next up boys and girls, we're doing another clash of the champions. We're going back even further two years prior to this, the November 19th, 1991 in Savannah, Georgia, there's roughly 7,000 fans. There it's a 4.3 rating on TBS and it's quite the match. It's big Josh versus Thomas rich in a lumberjack match. It's Bobby Eaton versus firebreaker chip It's Tom Zink versus the diamond stud. It's Steve Austin defending his TV title against P and news. Yo baby. Who booked that shit? Uh, cactus Jack taking on van hammer, Dustin Rhodes and Ricky steamboat taking on the enforcers, which is Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco. The world tag team titles are at stake. Brian Pillman will defend his light heavyweight championship against Johnny B bad. Rick rude will defend his United States championship against sting. And in the main event for the world championship, Lex Luger will defend his title against Rick Steiner. Rick has Scott in his corner. Lex has Harley and Mr. Hughes in his. It's an interesting time in WCW. Ric Flair has flown the coop and the, uh, the sands are going through the hourglass on Jim Hurd's time in WCW. I'm looking forward to talking about this, Eric. I know at the time you're still a C squad announcer, but the winds of change are blowing through WCW once again in 1991. Yeah, not, not still a C squad announcer. I'm barely there as a C squad announcer. This was a, a, a really interesting time. And, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it too, by the way, before we go, just want to thank you, Conrad, for giving me this opportunity. I'm having a blast doing this podcast. Anybody that listens to me knows that. And to everybody that listens, uh, if you didn't listen to us and support our sponsors, we wouldn't be here. I would get this opportunity to put over Conrad Thompson, the king of the podcast. Mountain. Oh. No, sincerely. I appreciate that. But I also do appreciate what you're saying there that, you know, I think, uh, sometimes you and I have so much fun that we, we do forget to thank our sponsors and our listeners for supporting them because, you know, without them, none of this really happens. Uh, by the way, we're going to wrap up the month of November with some really fun stuff. World war three, 1996, which believe it or not, is one of our more requested shows uh, on top. Of course, we know it's the 60 man, three ring battle Royal. We've also got, uh, the outsiders working with the faces of fear, Malenko and psychosis. I can't believe this is a thing, but sister Sherry and Colonel Robert Parker are working a match. The amazing French Canadians are with the Harlem heat. Jeff Jarrett's with the giant Nick Patrick. Yes. Nick Patrick is going to wrestle Chris Jericho. And how about this for an opener Ultimo dragon and Ray Mysterio for the J crown championship. That's coming your way later this month on the 23rd. And then we'll wrap up November with a TNA's final resolution from 2010. And then man. December we're loaded for bear Starcade 99 Starcade 2000 Starcade 91. And of course we're going to go back and revisit where you were fired on Monday night raw, uh, in early Oh five or early December. Oh five. Lots of fun stuff coming your way. Don't forget. You get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. 
And Eric, last week we debuted not one, but two sort of mean or sort of Eric fires back concepts. One, we're having you respond to old shoot interview clips. People absolutely ate it up. Uh, you obliterated some folks, including Bret Hart and Vince Russo and others. But then we even let fans get in on the action. We shared some mean tweets and you teed off one after another. And folks are absolutely loving it at adfreeshows.com. What's the feedback you've gotten about those two pieces of business? Well, all of a sudden I'm getting a lot more hostile emails and social media messages. So I guess that's a good thing. If controversy creates cash and I believe that heat is life, I am back. I am back to life. Cause my, my social media, uh, page, uh, over at, uh, at eBischoff on Twitter, it's really the only one I follow, um, is smoking hot. And I'm hoping that all that hate mail is coming because people want me to respond and not that I've touched on such a raw nerve that I'm going to lose my fan base, but we'll find out one way or the other. You never know until you try. Well, check it out. He's back and better than ever. And he's at adfreeshows.com. And tomorrow, Eric, are you excited? We're debuting. We're dropping as the kids are saying our full 4k interview with Jim Hurd, the first one in nearly 20 years. And, uh, you haven't seen it yet. I bet you're going to be watching that one, uh, with bated breath, huh? I, I actually, I am, I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't ask you, you know, did my name come up and in what, and I don't want to know by the way. So don't tell me here, uh, or anywhere. Cause I, I want to, I want to experience it just like everybody else is going to experience it. And, uh, whether my name did come up or not is kind of irrelevant because Jim Hurd is a really, uh, interesting and important, uh, uh, part of WCW history, a very important part of WCW history. And other than, uh, some obscure interviews that he did back in early 2000. Um, we haven't heard from him. It's a big deal. It's Jim heard tomorrow on adfreeshows.com. And don't forget next week, right here. It's clash of the champion 17 on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Perhaps the best way to introduce a friend to 83 weeks is to direct them to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Be sure to hit the subscribe button right now. It's totally free. You get a sneak peek of upcoming shows, plus some exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. And perhaps best of all, some great new giveaways coming your way absolutely for free. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and be sure to check out the shirts over at ericbischoff.com. If it's been a while, we need to remind you we're adding new ones all the time. Plus there's tons of new gimmicks at boxofgimmicks.com. Like right now, we have some of Dave Silva's cover art on posters, lots of different ways to support the show and be a part of the 83 weeks community. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Of course, ericbischoff.com and who could forget boxofgimmicks.com. And Hey, if you'd like to advertise your product or service here on the show and hear Eric Bischoff brag about you or your business, it's easy to make that happen. Just go to advertisewithconrad.com. Telling you. Okay, stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy. She's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait. What? 
Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista's available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, before we get out of here, I want to remind you, don't put Christmas on a credit card. Instead, get rid of all that credit card debt right now, once and for all, and even skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. It really is that simple. In just about 10 minutes, we're going to show you how much you can save for free. It's no cost, no obligation, and if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. But we're licensed in more than 40 states and ready to hook you up. Go check out our five-star reviews over at SaveWithConrad.com and then get a quick quote and find out how much money you can save for free. We've helped thousands of our podcast listeners, just like you, save their family tens of thousands of dollars, 50, 60, 70, 80, even a hundred thousand bucks you could save. And it just takes about 10 minutes to get started right now at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. You know what to do. Go to savewithconrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.